we've been researched enough. Um, we need dollars, we need resources um, to address the solutions, and we need that in a long-term manner because these are long-term problems. And so we already know this stuff. Welcome to our podcast series, Resistance in Color. We explore resistance as the way that we fight the challenges, structures that negatively affect spheres of our mental, social, and physical health. We hear from a host of BIPOC voices of community members featuring activists, healers, organizers, students. We will engage in how we resist, find solidarity, and gain insight on how to cope within our own bodies. The series features stories of incredible resilience focused on the healing of both individuals and communities as an active form of resistance. This podcast series has been made possible by the Fund for Safe Communities grant of the Minneapolis Foundation to NAMI Minnesota's Multicultural Youth Advisory Board. Welcome and thank you for listening. Welcome to this episode of Resistance in Color. I'm Cynthia and... I'm Perry. And today's guest is Dr. LaVon Moore. Dr. Moore is a doctor of nursing practice. She's also the founder and CEO of Chosen Vessels Midwifery Services, which is a subsidiary of Kimmet Circle, LLC. Kimmet Circle was born in 1998 out of a desire to address health disparities for women of color by providing training and curriculum development. But since its conception, it has expanded to offer more intimate services such as health counseling, lactation consulting, and birth support for all women. Dr. Moore has been a healer, a health provider, educator, and activist in her community for decades. Her desire is that all women prosper and attain good health. Her goal is to inspire women to use midwives for care throughout their lifespan and to recognize the importance of breastfeeding because she believes that good health begins with breastfeeding. Welcome, Dr. Moore. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we start our discussion today um, about um, our topic, resistance and color. So when we think about resistance, we think about um, the ways in which people fight the challenges that, that negatively affect their mental health, physical health, um, emotional health, economic health. And in some people are activists, other people um, really look at fortifying their children against these sorts of, of, of things that might affect their children's physical, mental, or emotional health. Um, and so but we want to start off our discussion with a few questions about your perspectives on resistance. When you hear that resistance in color, what does that what does that mean to you? And how would you describe your work as resistance work? Um, yes, I would. I I, I uh, love the color resistance <laughs> as a term because um, you know historically there's this belief that um, our when you go back to our enslaved experience as Americans that we did not um, resist. Mm-hmm. And we under and we know that there's different ways to resist, mm-hmm. and women specifically did resist. Um, they used herbs mm-hmm. um, as abortifacients. Um, they used herbs to prevent pregnancies. They would have a combination of herbs that they would in in, in case in um, cheesecloth and insert into the vagina to prevent pregnancy. So they had contraceptives that they used to resist. Um, so they're 
are forms of resistance that took place um, as an enslaved being. And, yeah. and as we translate that to our modern time, right. um, moving into work that is for us, by us, is a form of resistance. And so that's the work that I have been involved in, um, in terms of the Chocolate Milk Club, which is a service of Chosen Vessels Midwifery Services that provides um, um, care for African-American women. Our goal is to reclaim um, the culture of breastfeeding, which is which historically was our cultural norm, and to provide support and help and education for women and their families to um, reclaim that cultural practice of breastfeeding because we now understand um, the benefits of that. And mm. so um, that is work um, that I have um, used to improve the health of my community because I do believe that um, we hear all this negative talk, right, about health disparities and numbers. Mm. And so I'm really about solutions, and I've always been about solutions. Yeah. We can talk about numbers until the hills run over. And we also know that, you know, science is real, um, research and data is real, but mm. we also know it can be um, modified to meet one's needs. And so one of the things that I think that I'm very proud of and it's involved in my work is the Chocolate Milk Club comes from um, me um, doing actually community-based action research as my doctorate work. Mm -hmm. And that is when you go, you look at an issue, you go to the community and you um, talk to the community about the issue and, and, and see what their thoughts are about it, what the research says. You come back and look at how, and you look at what the community feels is a solution or answer. What would they like to see around this issue? Mm. And then you do something about it, right? Yeah. You just don't do the research and, you know, Let move it go. forward in your career, put your doctorate project on the shelf. Yeah. And that doesn't improve the community that you're researching. We've been researched enough. Um, we need dollars. We yeah. need resources um, to address the solutions. And we need that in a long-term manner because these are long-term problems. And so we already know this stuff. And so when I did my research, and again, I'm very proud of it because, um, you know, you've all read research and, and understand there's, you know, the work that's involved in that. Yeah. Um, I interviewed African-American women in Twin Cities area um, and looked at what their thoughts were around breastfeeding, what the barriers were for them, mm -hmm. um, and, and developed my um, chocolate milk club based on what they'd like to see, which is women who look like them. They wanted support to breastfeed. They wanted education and they did desire to breastfeed. There was this right community assumption in the healthcare community that they did not. Mm. Um, but there weren't examples, you know, that was a practice, a cultural practice that people weren't seeing. It wasn't the norm anymore. So people were not seeing women that breastfed. Didn't mean they didn't want to, they just didn't know about it. Um, or didn't know how, because breastfeeding is natural, but it's not always easy. And yeah. that's one of the things I often say in the Chocolate Milk Club. It's, you know, it's one of our themes. It's natural, but it's not always easy. Mm. So we're here to support women to breastfeed and encourage them to breastfeed as long as they can, because we know breastfeeding, the benefits of it, not only for the um, infant's health at the time, but it protects their future health. So it's one of those things that pays forward. And we also know that it protects um, women against female cancers, right? Mm. So it's really important. It also has protective factors against car future cardiovascular health 
for their children, right? Mm -hmm. And we know those are the things that impact, right? Health disparities, right? Those are the chronic diseases that mm -hmm. impact us. Hypertension, diabetes, um, and those things, those numbers are reduced in breastfed children. Yeah. So it's very, and by over, last I checked was over 20%. You can't get those numbers for anything else. Right. You can't, you know, that is significant it enough. Is quite significant. To, to be, um, for breastfeeding to really be um, a tool um, against um, some of the health disparities or a tool for elimination. Um, and we understand that, you know, now the people are beginning to understand um, that how impactful breastfeeding is in terms of social determinants of health, mm -hmm. how it impacts all of those things. So, you know, what it does, right? What it does, what I own right in my own breast is yeah. so significant to the health of my family in mm -hmm. the community. So from a cultural resistance type of two, and I don't need to ask anybody to help me to do, I mean, to ask anybody to do this, mm -hmm. right? I don't need permission. I don't need necessarily, I don't even need um, someone's program <laughs> to help me to do this. Right. I don't need all the things that have been resources, but also has created, in a sense, some learned helplessness, mm -hmm. right, in our communities um, to do this. We need support. We need education to reclaim because we're not seeing it, but we can do this on our own. And so that is um, how I resisted, is that I've worked with women in my community. I've advocated for women in my community for many years. Um, and then in thinking of what can I do to impact, you know, I'm, I'm a healthcare provider, I've been a public health advocate in the community, going to meetings for many years, hearing all of this data and, and, and think, but what can I do, right? Mm. Because I got to a point where I was sick of hearing all that stuff and that <laughs> what is the solution? We were always researched, but when dollars came down, right. we never saw those dollars go to the boots on the ground mm. where people are doing the work mm -hmm. who... Um, it's only based, it's always only based on who had the big names, right? Um, and they continue to get the dollars. But those who are doing um, community work that grew out of the community right. do not get the same support. Right, right. So I wanted a tool that regardless of if those resources came or not, that I could work with, a mm. tool that I could use and give my community in order to help themselves. Mm. Wow, that's because, powerful. You know, we really are, we are the ones we're waiting for. And, you know, we're the, and we don't need to wait, we, you know, for other people to take care of us. We have tools that we can use um, that are God-given tools. I'm just going to say that, right? Mm. That's the way we were created in order to take care of ourselves, you know? And so that was why um, breastfeeding uh, became so significant for me and my work as a midwife. Um, I am so thankful to have found my space and place and mm. purpose, and that I stand on the um, shoulders of history with black midwives. You know, we were the care providers of our community, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we weren't allowed. We didn't have access to hospitals and things that we do now. Mm. It was midwives in your community that cared for the entire family. Mm. And so the, the history of midwifery in itself is very significant in the um, scope of practice, mm -hmm. which is very different to now with the 
reemergence or renaissance of midwifery that the European culture really has has um, reclaimed. Their practice is very narrow to focus just on that pregnancy and that delivery, catching babies, catching babies. Yeah. In the black tradition, it's bigger. It's about taking care of families and community. Mm. About taking care of those women. It's about helping them breastfeed. You know, historically, midwives, you know, took care of the whole family and they took care of men in that family as well. And they also took care of the dead. Mm. They prepared the dead for burial. I'm glad that scope of practice is not being done now. <laughs> but <laughs> it was a much larger scope. Yeah. And we stood on a, and I stand on the shoulders of women who did home births, um, who um, taught other women in the community to birth. Um, and so it's really important. So that resistance in terms of healing and the work that we do yeah. in our communities, many people who are doing that, but this is the one piece that I'm doing that I have found be to use because of the impact is so great, right? right? It impacts our economy, the environment. Mm. Think of all the things that breastfeeding impacts, you know, mm. the money it saves, the waste, the less waste because we don't have the plastic and all of the things that formula brings. Right. Um, pretty much every social determinant of health that impacts us mm. um, outside of housing, even though that, you know, to move and to live in spaces with your babies is very different when you've connected and bonded with them. Right. Parenting, um, health care, all these different things that impact us. Breastfeeding has some piece that impacts it. Hmm. So it's a wonderful tool to help um, address health disparities and social determinants of health. And the greater community is beginning to understand that. Um, but I've known that from my work and my research all along. So I have a, a whole host of questions. <laughs> Good. So okay. for those of you who don't know, um, LaVon or I, we have a history. We worked in a clinic together um, many years right. ago. And one right. of the things um, that I remember about that clinic, it was a teaching clinic for new residents, is, is there was always this um, pervasive idea that black people didn't want to do what's right or best for their health. Um, mm -hmm. Do you remember that? And, and so, you know, this is resistance to that whole system that, that believes that we don't want to have health, that we are not willing to do the work. How did you, I mean, what were the first steps that you took to start getting into the community and getting um, black women to listen about doing uh, about uh, about um, breastfeeding? Well, first of all, I had been doing community work and birthing work prior to um, becoming a midwife. I was a nurse um, practitioner in women's health um, prior to becoming a midwife and our clinic experience that we worked at really led to that. Um, working in that clinic, let me know very clearly. I can, you know, and it, it really gave me an interest to do women's health MP, to be to to go back to school to do that training because of that clinic experience. So it was um, impactful in that way. And what I found in talking to women and working with women over the years um, is there all kinds of, I said, assumptions about what we are what we do and what we don't want. There also is this assumption that anybody can work with us, 
that we don't have a culture of our own. And mm -hmm. we do, okay? Yeah. And some of that comes because we're the longest assimilated mm -hmm. ethnic group in the country. And so people assume we've just integrated and we don't have our own culture. Mm. African-Americans have their own culture. We have our own culture around a lot of things. Mm. And so food ways, life ways, a lot of things. And we've had a lot of cultural shift from a simulation, um, right, that has not always benefited us. So just from years of working in the community, working as a clinician, hearing conversations, being in the meetings, being um, just like the SAGE program, a screening program for women around breast and cervical cancer. I coordinated that program at, at the clinic that we worked at. So just being at meetings and being in these different environments and hearing conversations, very often some very racist conversations mm -hmm. um, that medical providers um, and things that they would say, um, just led me to a place that for me that we needed something different. We needed to focus on um, what we had and um, our own tools, that own things that are available to us to help impact, that we really are the people we're waiting for. And talking to the women in the community, they were very clear. We want to breastfeed. We just don't know how. No one teaches us. Mm -hmm. And they said, they p assume we don't want to breastfeed. If when they come into the room in the hospital after we've had our babies, and they'll just ask, oh, you, you, you want to breastfeed? And you just are tired and overwhelmed and mm. you don't really know. And then they just leave. It's like, well, no, I don't know. And then, you know, the assumption is you don't want to. They not getting, they were not getting education. Mm. These are the women. This is what women told me <clears throat> um, during their prenatal visits. Providers have great impact. Yeah. And um, their sphere of influence is quite great. Mm. So being, in, they're important to, um, providing that prenatal education and making sure that women know about breastfeeding during their pregnancy, right? Mm. Um, because that we have a lot of time working with these women um, to educate and encourage them to breastfeed. And so we need to make sure we're doing that because that's a great impact if the provider doesn't provide that information or feel it's important. Mm -hmm. Patients take that on, right? And yeah. then mm -hmm. they don't breastfeed. Yeah. So talking to women in the community, being in the community, because I've done a lot of things in the community around women's health for years. Mm. Um, so none of this is, is, is new, but this particular area was an area that I spent some time researching after I became a midwife um, that I felt I could make a good, uh, uh, an impact, you know, um, without needing systems per se to help me do that. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. that I could work with my own community um, because I just found that there was a lot of issues around systems that were not working for us mm -hmm. and still don't work for us yeah. and actually keep us sick. You know, what I really liked about what you said is, is talking about what you learned from being a boots on the ground uh, um, healthcare provider and that that mm -hmm. led to the other areas that you uh, utilized in order to develop a program because mm. um, usually it comes the other way top down from the top down uh -huh. and so then the voice of, of the individuals of the voice of the community is is not heard yeah and very often when we use the the model of research um, it's through a very eurocentric research laden eye yes. which does not work as well um, 
when we're talking about cultural communities. And yeah. so I love mm -hmm. that that you started with boots on the ground um, and that you took note of what you were seeing and hearing and used that to then tap into the research and then develop a program. Um, you know, that's activism at its best, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I have just a, a question about activism. I know your mom. Okay. Your mom is an activist as well. What kind of influence did she have in having you um, take that road, you know, take medical activism? Well, <laughs> a great impact. I mean, my mother is my shero. My mom has yeah. always been an activist, and we were raised in that way. Mm -hmm. um, so it is my norm. Um, I don't know really any other way to be because that was what was modeled to me, mm -hmm. um, that you do not um, forget your community. Um, and, you know, I remember my mother telling me one time is that everybody can't leave. Okay. My mother was a well-educated woman. She's a master's degree. She's an educator. She was um, a, a licensed clinical social worker and educator um, at, at University of Minnesota and, and Augsburg College. So, very, you know, most of the times, often um, people will leave their community. And I remember her telling me very clearly, everyone can't leave. Mm. You have to, people have to stay. People have to see people getting up, working getting up, going to work in the morning. People mm. have to see professionals. You can't leave your community and you have to um, stay and work and help your community. So I was raised in activism. I was raised in that whole value, core value system of that. I was raised um, also be proud of being an African-American woman mm -hmm. um, and that um, I um, was raised to care about um, my people and to feel that my there was... Um, that um, there's excellence in my people. And so I, I was raised um, to be proud of being black. And I know um, that um, when you think about, you know, the space that you came from, I also think the space where you come from is so important because I came from a space where I was very loved in my family. Mm. So I had love to reach out and, and give to other people because I had that yeah. um, in my space. Um, so I just think my, my mother was a great influencer. She raised her children to be proud of who they are, to give back to their community um, and to um, honor um, God with their lives that they were given and that everybody could do something. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to say and your so mom was a mentor to me as well. And she had a huge impact um, in terms of my activism. My, both my mother and your mother, I think, are the two people that I can think of that had the biggest impact on me as well. Mm. Um, and your mom stood yeah. tall. She was, uh, she was the pillar in the community, even when it was hard, even when she had to suffer consequences. Mm. And even mm -hmm. when, you know, it... It affected her health and her job and all of those things. She was a pillar mm -hmm. and she never wavered. Um, and no. and so, re, you know, when I look at resistance, I think you are the embodiment of your mom's <laughs> resistance. Yes, yes. And my mom was a resistor. I mean, she, my mother cared about black children. She worked in the school system and was really concerned about how black children were being educated and the resources that were available to them. And, and you're exactly right. There was sacrifice. She made great sacrifice for that. 
Um, but um, she stood her ground, and um, I am very grateful for the example um, mm-hmm. of that example, and just very grateful. I, I'm, I very, very, I often think about, you know, I'm just very grateful and um, feel very blessed um, that I came from the woman that I came from. Mm. So I know that I was blessed from birth. And so I know that many people don't have that. Mm. So I, um, I really understand the impact of people who do not come from good spaces where they're loved, they're supported, and when they're safe. Yeah. Mm. And so we have many people in our community that do not come from that space. Yeah. And these um, and when that happens, when people come from those spaces, they have deficits and those deficits and their, 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 um, impact, how they are able to, um, take care of themselves mm-hmm. and, and how they're able during pregnancy and how they're able to parent. Yeah. And so all of that is important. So again, breastfeeding, right? <laughs> what does breastfeeding do? It creates bonding. Absolutely. Um, and it, it, it changes how people parent mm. and connect with their children. So again, all those things that I have been concerned about, and many of the women in my world have been concerned about who are working in the community, breastfeeding is a, is a tool to address it. Mm. As I was listening to you, one of the things that you said um, a little earlier on in the first question was that the greater community is now beginning to understand the importance of breastfeeding in the journey of like of health and, and in life general in general and I'm even as I was listening to how you were thinking about your research and how it came about my question is where do you think society found this misconceptions and this perceptions and this aversions towards breastfeeding but where did this kind of aversion and the the pushback or the challenges towards understanding and viewing breastfeeding the way that you're explaining we should be viewing it now where do you think that kind of where did you where did it break what happened and what kind of caused that gap well I, I, well let's talk about some of our racist systems mm. okay these are systems that were created that changed the way we birth and changed the way we raise children mm. right so Part of the reason slavery in itself and in itself created a lack of control over a woman's body. Mm. And so some of that resistance, breastfeeding allows and that resistance towards breastfeeding, um, I think is historical, right? Mm-hmm. You're forced to feed other ch- people's children as mm. wet nursing. Your children may die during that process, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because by the time you've spent time wet nursing someone else's baby, you may not have enough milk for your own. Mm-hmm. You're poorly nourished, right? You're worked to death. So all of that's going to impact your milk supply and as well as your um, desire yeah. to breastfeed. Yeah. Your bodies are controlled, right? Um, and so not breastfeeding um, and making some of those decisions that were made for you in the past can, for some people, feel like a, taking back a control of their bodies. Mm. The other thing is breastfeeding was equated, right, with poor women, um, just like midwifery was re- right equated mm-hmm. with poor women mm. so people who did not historically have access to the greater medical community mm. could look over here and see white women um, being seen and in clinics and having babies in hospitals and getting Mm. formula. Mm. So deprivation makes one think, right? That, oh, what I have is not adequate. So then that whole 
um, Town Shepherd Act that changed the practice of midwifery once, once white physicians could be reimbursed for that care, right? Mm -hmm. Once there were some law changes that allowed them to be reimbursed for that care, then you became more attractive as a patient, right? When the mm -hmm. funding related uh, to that care changed, yes. right? So when those practices on on financial practices changed, yeah. then you could access and then you thought, right? What Miss Ann gets is better. And I'm just using that term, okay, because that's a cultural term. Okay. Um that people may have not heard, but it's a cultural term mm. that was often used to refer to Caucasian women who you were enslaved to who were in the big house. Okay. Mm -hmm. I see. So that's a cultural term people used to use, right? Mm. Um, and so what someone else who has more wealth than you and has more resources you, that looks more better than what you have. Yes. Because again, we've given negative messages about midwives. They said they were dirty. They said they were um, um, superstitious mm. and, and all these negative things to push them out of practice once um, we moved into nurse midwifery and trying to create the role of a nurse, um, again, which is, it, it's all this kind of legislative changes that impacted medical care mm. that can contribute to, to the change in practice. So mm -hmm. how you birth, right? Now we're not at home anymore where it's natural for you to be um, shown how to breastfeed where everybody around you, that's how they fed your babies, yeah. right? But now you have access to what you believe is better, mm -hmm. right? Um, hospital, doctor, mm -hmm. that's where white women go. We equate because they have had a better standard of living than us. Mm -hmm. We assume that's better that's care. Better. And better and outcome. Fact, and, better, and they assume that. But midwives had very good outcomes yes. for childbirth. But yes. the mm. propaganda was that they didn't. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Because that message was pushed to push midwives who were not nurse midwives, who were midwives who were trained and apprenticed in traditional midwifery mm. out of business yes. once there was the ability for economic gains tied to this birthing population. Uh, Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So all of that impact um, people's breastfeeding yeah, and um, it's for our community. And so you don't, so then people, right. And then we had WIC, right. Because WIC, you know, who has now attempted to rebrand and they're, which is great. And they're really um, pushing breastfeeding now. Yeah. But that was the government program that was tied to the Food and Drug Administration, mm -hmm. right? Um, they had contracts, right, for formula. And so that's how, you know, all of that makes. It's mm. just, you know, so again, some of this is um, big business, mm. right? How it impacts stuff. How Think about formula at that one time when Carnation sent that formula to Africa, right? And all those babies got sick and died, right? Because you have to, they said powder <laughs> formula, right? Yes. Formula that needed to be mixed with water yes. where folks don't have access to clean yes. water. Right. Yes. So again, but that was, that was business. So we mm. have to understand that there is a price to pay for capitalism. Yeah. If we are not social entrepreneurs who have mission driven that are built on, and you see a lot more of that happening now, built on, an, on help, service, support, not just take, take, take. Yeah. So there's going to be liabilities in that model. Yeah. Um, and so I think that is what has contributed. You talked about this a bit and I, and it, 
uh, it makes me think about some of the things and, and the mistrust, I guess, that exists now in between women of color, or people of color, even specifically women, uh, black women and the public health system because it has previously been used against them and against their bodies. That's I think right, about right. how you've talked about the kind of the process of the institutionalization of the birthing process, both even childbirth, childcare, that how all those processes that traditionally began in the home with in a cultural setting, in a community setting around midwives or around other mothers has now been mm -hmm. taken into an institution so that um, uh, practices around how to treat your babies, how to, how, to, how to go through the process of birth so that now natural birth is seeming like a, a woke thing when that was what traditionally is what happened. <laughs> right, right. And then people the were disempowered about it. The medicalization, excuse me, the mm -hmm. medicalization of birth. Right? Yeah. That's what you're talking about. That's what I'm talking about. And I think that's, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that too because we've seen a lot of, um, even in the recent past, even famous black women speak out against the violence that they've experienced in hospitals on their own bodies about their process of birth. And and we think, wow, this is the 21st century. Hasn't this changed? Why are we still seeing these black bodies in this way and, and treating them in this way? Could you speak a little bit to what that medicalization of that process of childbirth specifically has done to women of color to their well, to, for their disservice? Well, we're talking about two different things. So when I'm talking oh. about the medicalization of birth, I'm talking about when we move the birth, you said to institutionalize, yes. institutions that medicalizes it. Right. And what I mean by that, birthing in itself is a normal physiological process. Correct. Um, that now has become a medical problem. Mm -hmm. okay, so ah. That whole ideology around that, right? right? It does not mean that we do not need doctors. It does not mean that we don't need hospitals because we do. We do. And unfortunately, we do. Because women are sicker when they <laughs> when they start their pregnancies and the um, issues of racism has impacted people's literally their DNA and, and has impacted their overall health. Yeah. The other thing is. People are surprised, I think, sometimes by um, when they say, oh, this celebrity had this and they're like to talk about the black bodies and what happens to them in these institutions. People are a little surprised, I think, and I don't know why, but they are, <laughs> um, that racism exists in healthcare. Right. You know I mean? <laughs> right. I mean, you think about, people act like they're surprised that, and historically, that's always been there. You think about yeah. um, who they call the father of OBGYN who practiced on Black, black women, medical surgical procedures, okay, without, without giving them, enslaved women, without giving them any kind of an anesthesia. Right. Um, so there's this assumption because you're a doctor or whatever that you're not going to, I think that exists, right? That the assumption that you're not going to be racist, but people right. are, and that's why people I think are so traumatized mm. by those experiences because there's this perception where well, they're a doctor or yeah. they're a nurse or they're this that has nothing to do <laughs> with the, <laughs> that doesn't mean you can't, that people still do not see you 
in the way you think that they should. Right. You know, I think about how we talk about distrust of the medical system. Mm. And I'd like to change that terminology to survival skills of the medical system. Uh-huh. Because mm-hmm. you have to have um, a healthy dose of mistrust mm-hmm. to keep yourself safe. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're right, people have been experimented on it. And as recently as my grandmother's. Um, a time when she ended up in the hospital and they tried experimental medications on her without her permission Mm -hmm. and without permission from anyone and she died. And so Mm -hmm. truly, when you think about survival skills are the skills that keep you alive Mm -hmm. in an untenuous or unsafe situation, distrust really um, is the manifestation of survival skills Uh in the medical system. Question, um, don't just believe everything you hear. Mm. Um, try and stay away from a system that might hurt you mm. um, or might harm you. And now that we're having more people of color, more black people become um, doctors and providers, we know that there aren't enough. And so now people right. are having to make this this shift in their thinking, mm. you know, when they go into a, a, a provider of color. And I know that for me personally, it is it is such a different interaction when I go and see a provider of color. I don't feel judged. I don't feel like, I feel like I can tell them the truth without them looking at me as, oh, you know, pathological, you know? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, right now we don't have enough providers of color. It will be years before we have enough. And so Mm -hmm. um, it is really important for current providers to change their practice to do better Mm -hmm. um, for the people the overflow people that don't have access to providers of color. Do you have any words of um, or ideas about what better can happen um, so that um, providers who are not black providers serving people who are black people or Mm -hmm. brown people um, can better meet the needs and begin to work toward a relationship where survival isn't what a person has to has to think about before they go into the appointment yeah well i'm gonna back up a little bit um and go to um what can patient do for themselves or okay what is being okay. served do for themselves mm. um because one of the things is that you need to ask questions you need to be engaged in your health care you cannot expect anyone mm. to care right. more about you than you care for yourself. yourself. Right. And I am amazed at how much power people just give over to a perfect stranger. And I understand the trust that people mm. have because they're healthcare providers, but people who have to be engaged in their own health care. Yes. And I think that's something that's been missing because of the system, right? We talk about, you know, this kind of a patriarchal system that's set up to create this learned helplessness. Mm -hmm. Um, We got to call you 10 times to get you in for your appointment and all these things. um, We got to incentivize you to death, all these things to help you take care of yourself. I think one of the things is patients need to people um, in general need to wake up and be engaged in their own lives. Mm -hmm. I think there's just this whole kind of, and that was prior to COVID, this kind of apathy around one's own life and itself, okay? Mm-hmm. We know that um, historical racism will create a certain kind of apathy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so I'm not blaming anyone. 
I'm just saying at some point in time, you got to take responsibility for your own health and life. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, um, when you're engaging in healthcare systems, if you don't understand things, don't just leave. Ask. Hey, I don't understand. Yeah. Ask questions and make people answer your questions. Because I noticed that, um, when I'm seeing clients who have may have been seen somewhere else, and I asked them, okay, you were seen for a particular issue, and what do you know about this? I don't know. I don't know. They didn't. Did they explain it to you? Da, da, da. So that's something. The other thing is because I serve mainly women, so I'm going to speak from my standpoint as a clinician and from what the work that I do around. Um, and this is the healer, right? Yeah. This is the healing mm-hmm. part. Is that? And, is that I see so many women that are so disconnected from their bodies and mm-hmm. themselves for whatever reason that can be. So people are really not listening. You know, when you're in interaction, people aren't listening. They're all, and women are so busy, right? They're multitasking. Mm-hmm. They think they've got to pick up the kids from childcare. They've got to figure out, I, I need a few onions to, because to, I, <laughs> I ran out of onions, got to pick them up on the way to, because I'll, to, you know, because I got to cook dinner and yes. I, I'm out of this. Yes. I need some milk. I need some onions. I got to get some cornmeal. So, you know, you know, they're they're running between so many things. The society is moving at such an unhealthy, pe- fast pace all the time Yeah, that we have to um, slow ourselves down mm-hmm. um, and, um, and develop some core values for ourselves or reclaim our core values for ourselves and our mm-hmm. families and build our lives around that mm-hmm. and not be so caught up in the greater um, society and what they're pushing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, 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 and make some decisions for how we want to live for ourselves. And, and then we have to take some responsibility for ourselves. So we need to go in um, and ask questions, not be afraid to ask questions, not be afraid to have people um, tell people I need you to repeat or go over this again for me. Yeah. Um, just that old fashioned, take a pen and a, um, um, a, um, notebook with you, yeah. um, that you should use all the time. If you're, especially if you have illness that you can use at your appointments to write things down, mm. write people's names down. It's the same as when you're dealing with the school system, your children, write people's names down mm. conversations. You need to record and make notes of. So that you have that information later or numbers or information you need Mm. so you can ask questions or say, no, I was told so-and-so. So So, um, just going, being engaged, I think, is a big part. Um, And we have a lot of women, um, I think, that apathy and then we have, you know, that goes along with that. The mood disorders, the depression and the things that people just don't engage at the level um, that they should. And so when they go into these systems, okay. Mm Um, they are interacting with folks, um, who are on time limits, right. Um, who are being pushed to see more people in less time. Um, everyone who, um, they have interaction with may not be trying to, um, create a racial incident, but it can happen because of miscommunication. We don't have time, blah, 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 whatever could be happening. But time is a big factor in seeing healthcare. Right. So I encourage women, um, people to be prepared when you go in. Mm. Understand, someone can't take care of your 10 list. We, we want you to have your 10 list. We can start working on your 10 list. Yeah. But don't expect everything to get done in that day. Yeah. Um, expect that you may have more than one visit. Mm. 
um, and that um, you need to, you're best served when you also have primary care. Because mm. one of the things that I see too is a lot of people bumping around. So um, people are very mobile for whatever reasons. We know we have housing issues and other um, issues that contribute to um, people moving. So there may be people might be going to this clinic um, this year, um, another clinic somewhere else, or they may be going to the same clinic but every time they come in, yeah. because we don't understand what's truly urgent versus what is not, yeah. right? What is maintenance and prevention versus what is emergent? And then what is truly an emergency versus what is urgent, right? There's a differential between that because truly emergencies, that's what you go to the emergency room for. I got chest pain, numbness and tingling in my arms. I feel like I'm having a heart attack. Yeah. You don't go to the emergency room because I have vaginal discharge. Okay. Mm. But that's what you see people doing. Yeah. Okay. They'll come to the clinic with chest pain and go to the emergency room with vaginal discharge. So helping people to sort out some of their stuff. Yeah. I think clinics ideally should have, especially for new patients. Um, I'd like to see them have a new patient class just to help them explain how to use the system. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Because people expect you to use it correctly, yes. and it's complicated, mm -hmm. especially if English isn't your first language, if you have health or literacy issues, it's complicated. Yes. And if you don't, they'll hold you accountable for using it right, and they will punish you if you don't, but no one ever tells you how to use Absolutely. it right. Absolutely. So when you talk about what do you I think providers or clinic systems should have new should have classes where they explain how to use their system, mm. Right should explain the difference between what you go to the clinic for, what you go to the emergency room for. Right. Who do you call if you have questions about your insurance? Because there's a number right on the back of your insurance card, right? Who do you, who do you use to get transportation? Because mm. I missed my appointment two times, not because I didn't want care. Couldn't I don't have there. transportation and no one ever asked me that. Mm -hmm. um, so resources within the clinic, to help support people use their system effectively versus punishing them, right? They didn't come, they didn't get their children's immunizations and you didn't find out why, but now there's some child protection person calling them. So not, not the systems need to not be punitive. Mm. They need to um, help connect people to resources in a real helpful way mm. and teach people how to navigate for themselves as well as have those side-by-side -side navigators, but we can't, we do need, there are a small, small group of people yeah. who may need you to hold their hand more, Yeah. but creating this learned helplessness that has happened, mm -hmm. I think is a disservice in these systems that end up being punitive if you don't use them right. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does. It does. So that's what I, when you asked about what can a provider do, they can advocate for creating some of these solutions in their systems. Mm. And educate. And educate. And educate. Mm. Yeah. But I think it also, we can also take it back to the providers to be like, hey, listen, when you're dealing with, it's not like a cookie cutter that you're going to apply to all your patients. When you're dealing with people who, English is not their first language. When you're dealing with people from a cultural community, when you're dealing with people of know that there are certain things. I think even in the way that um, 
training occurs for providers. Um, even even in our work with different organizations that are doing mental health, um, who are mental health uh, practitioners and providers, mm-hmm. being able to know your audience and know how to respond to them and know um, how to give that information. Because like you said, um, I want to be responsible for uh, my health and to know this. But when I go in and I talk to my doctor and my doctor is dismissive and the first thing that they assign to why my condition is the way that it is is because of the way I look, then automatically it feels like I'm, I'm already very distant from this system. And so I will not use it as something to take care of myself. So I'll go and try to do something else and medicate by myself and drink my ibuprofen to sleep. But... Um, even the way that I think providers and um, the system itself is designed. It's designed, even Cynthia, you said this earlier, in a very ethnocentric way. It's designed for someone who already knows their diagnosis, who knows their health, who's interacted with the system before, who has insurance, who's done this before. So those also little ways, not little ways, I think they're pretty big ways, structural ways that that can change to accommodate um, the different people who are coming in to see them as well. I see that there's been a right. movement for um, the whole the whole self, the whole body, mm. but that excludes a cultural perspective, even a poverty perspective. Mm. So the whole body may be the major organs and ask you how you're doing, but the piece that's being missed is, you know, how are you interacting with the system? Yeah, and you, you know, I think when when uh, Levada and I worked together, you know that what she talked about, about people being punished for not using the system correctly. I mean, it was all day, every day, and mm-hmm. in the ER as well. So we did a, a study and went and sat down and talked to, over a month, almost everyone that was using the system improperly. What was really interesting about that is many of them came from um, clinics in Chicago where, number one, you couldn't make an appointment for poor people. You just showed up and you waited. Um, and so there was no concept of preventative care, of making an appointment, when you use what service, when. And knowing that information, you know, the next logical step would be to sit people down and say, this is how you use it and this is why, mm-hmm. you know, that you establish care with a doctor. Yes. They get to know you, you get to know them and kind of those benefits and and. and I feel like even in that holistic model, that piece is missing mm. um, mm-hmm. because we resort we to, about, oh, no, I'm we sorry, resort to being punitive. Right. Well, I think primary care is really important because as you indicated, you know, um, your doctor knows you. Mm. Um, and so when I talk about people being mobile, one of the um, negatives about b- being mobile is that often people go to different places and aren't able to establish primary care. Right. But then you have systems, right? You have someone who makes appointment who says, oh, um, your doctor's not here today. I'll put you with so-and-so. Mm. Instead of saying your provider is in on this and this date and time. Yeah. The way you say that information so that then that person is put in with their provider, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of put in with somebody else. And again, when that happens day in, day in, appointment after appointment, are you really given primary care? Yeah. So no, you're not. Because majority of things, and that means if we educate not just patients, but then our staff, right? Right, right. 
on how to approach appointments. Mm. That if someone has, um, if they're a primary care provider and they uh, and they have a primary care provider and they want an appointment, you look for that primary care provider's next opening. Mm. If it's something that's not urgent, which majority of it is not, right? Mm. A real emergency goes in emergency room. Correct. And if it's urgent, it would be in an urgent care. I injured myself, broke a limb, I'm bleeding, you know, those kinds mm. of things. Yes. But a routine appointment can usually wait a couple of days till you can get in to see with your provider. Yeah. If we encourage more of that, we could really establish a greater base of primary care for mm. patients. And then their care would be better mm. overall. I think that's interesting. We spent billions of dollars on health equity over the last 20, 25 years mm-hmm. and are no better off. <laughs> and some of this low hanging fruit, you know, mm-hmm. teaching people about, you know, primary care and the benefits of it, breastfeeding, breastfeeding support, um, could have cut that amount that was spent probably 90% and had outcomes, you know, that were much more positive. But I'm really interested, you know, in what you've seen as the outcome as you follow your your chocolate milk moms. You know, what have you seen, you know, with what I'm seeing? What I'm seeing is women initiate um, breastfeeding. They stay with support. They stay breastfeeding longer Mm. Um, that when they have um, those bumps in the road, such as returning to work, right? Because women often return to work sooner. Um, if they are not professional women, we know, you know, they don't yeah. often have the best spaces and places to pump when they return to work to maintain their milk supply. Mm-hmm. Um, when they have that additional support, they're more apt to get over the hump, yeah. the bump in the road and keep breastfeeding. Yeah. So I think initiation is good. I think also women breastfeed longer when they have support. And that is the outcomes that I'm seeing. Mm. Um, and so it also is the more women we have breastfeeding, uh, the more it normalizes the practice in our community. And so that's one of the reasons why I have an annual chocolate milk day every year hey. um, during black breastfeeding week is to, bring all these breastfeeding moms together, you know, breastfeeding families rather together, rather they're presently breastfeeding or have breastfed in the past. So we can see all this wonderful chocolate milk in one space and you begin to understand you're not the only woman who's breastfeeding. There's a lot of women that are breastfeeding right? and it becomes more of a cultural norm. And um, that's really impactful for reclaiming this practice in our community that is so beneficial to our health. Yeah. Wow. Part of resistance is being able to be in community as well with people who are mm-hmm. in resistance. I think we have to continue to think as we are, I think we're coming to the end of our podcast series, but the many ways that we are, we've been thinking about resistance from the different guests who've been able to come on here, who've talked a lot about having some kind of structure, some kind of community to encourage and to sustain that resistance because it can be exhausting to to keep mm-hmm. doing it. it can be exhausting to keep fighting back and so i think it's 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 so wholesome that there is a community that you've created to encourage and to allow women to continue being part of that resistance that resistance mm-hmm. in color mm-hmm. but it's <laughs> that's right that's right yeah 
Um, well, any last words, Dr. Dr. Moore, um, before we close um, our final episode of Resistance in Color? Maybe even thinking about how lives can be centered around healing. How can our lives be centered around healing? Well, healing, again, on that whole, all those things that have been negatively impacted, right? Though all those disparities, mm. breastfeeding is a part of that, right? You know, the concerns around mental health, right? And the work that you do. Breastfed women have um, less postpartum depression. Mm. So it's really healing, right, to um, the brain in that way. Um, we know that when we come together mm. as mm. women of color, together as black women, I'm going to say black women, yes. even though, you know, women of color was a term that was developed by black women. People don't realize that from mm. Sister Song. They created that term mm. um, to, to talk about black women, and, and that's evolved into all kinds of other stuff. But any event, um, there's power in, in, in us coming together and, and being able to share and heal. And when you talk about healing in itself, um, the work that we, we don't often, those of us who are um, in healthcare providers or in the medical field, don't often see ourselves as healers. That's kind of a cultural term too, I think. Mm -hmm. And we forget about that. It took me a long time to mm -hmm. even um, embrace, you know, from the traditional system that I was educated in, right? The, right. Um, mm -hmm. It was took me a while to really embrace that notion of being a healer. Right. Um, and I have, it's so interesting over the, the last several years, I've had different people um, refer to me as that. Mm. And it's felt a little off-putting, a little uncomfortable. And mm. I have to live to have to live into that because that really is a powerful word to yes. me. Yes. Yeah. Um, and um the, and it's a spiritual word and mm. to um live into that really to me is really a big deal yeah and i think part of that is we have just moved away from understanding that um that is the work that we are to do yeah and that is the work you you know you're doing you're supposed to really look at it through that lens yeah and that that's a cultural lens and it makes it different mm. and so i um Think, just thinking about healing and that word of healing as being resistant in itself, because again, we're work focused on repair, restorative mm -hmm. healing. Mm -hmm. um, we're not just focusing on diagnosis and treatment of illness mm -hmm. or disease. Mm -hmm. Okay. We want to know what are the roots, right? Yeah. What is causing that particular illness yeah. in a different way? Because as a healer, you do see the bigger picture. Yeah. And that also includes spiritual. So what we see too, that is not a part of, tra of the traditional healthcare system in our country is that there is no place that addresses my spiritual being. Mm. And therefore without all of those components being addressed, can you really be whole or mm. well? I don't think so. And so I think, that's another piece that comes out of that tradition of healing. Mm. Spiritual practices were incorporated along with the other pieces 
because they understood that that was a part of being Mm -hmm. whole and well. And so, you know, um, healing is a powerful, it's a powerful term. And it really includes, you know, the whole person, including their spiritual peace Mm -hmm. in order for people to be well and understanding that that is part of healing and being well. Thank you, Dr. Mo, for being here today with us. Thank you for lending your voice in the community and lending your voice here with us to kind of share insights about what your work of resistances look like and what it can look like for different people in the community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And I do want to add one thing before you guys go, okay. is that when you talk about this work in resistance, mm. the other thing is that um, when you are doing this work, this work was important for me um, because of the systems and the things that I saw mm. that to me were not healing mm-hmm. and were not helping. Mm. And I, it was important in order for me to survive, yeah, mm-hmm. to create something that could help what I was seeing. Right. So it was also important for me to survive as a healthcare provider, as a healer, right. It was healing to me mm. to be able to create a solution mm-hmm. um, that I felt was really um, important for my community in order to heal myself. Because myself, because we forget providers of color are often traumatized in these systems in which we work as well, mm. and people forget about that, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know. Lots of traumatizing experiences happen at the clinic we worked at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so healthcare, when people are so amazed about um, the racism in healthcare, unfortunately, there's a lot of it. Um, and then it happens to um, providers as well as p- patients. So um, this having a solution to the issues um, was important for my healing as well. Yeah. So just wanted to share that. Oh, I just was going to add just one small thing is, is it. The reason that um, when I think about you as a healer, um, a healer is so much more than someone who treats a disease process or an illness. Mm -hmm. Because during your your time talking today, you talked about family, Mm -hmm. you know, breastfeeding as an impact to a family, um, to a community, Mm -hmm. to a system, you know, and so... And so it goes beyond treating disease and it, 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 it spreads out to healing the community. Mm. And then those people who benefit by breastfeeding become part of the community as as healed people mm. or people who've been affected by healing. <laughs> and so I see the impact as ripples, uh, you know, on the lake, you know, um, that just keeps generating ripples. Mm. Um, and, Definitely. you know, it starts a movement you know, a a healing movement. So, you know, thank you so much for your work um, and for your time Mm -hmm. um, and for spending time with us today. Um, And by the way, for the listening audience, she looks gorgeous. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. She got dressed up. She thought we were going to do the the visual (laughs) of of the interview. So I'm just telling you all are missing out. Um, (laughs) Maybe we should should include like a little picture. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. This was really awesome. And it was a good opportunity to you know just reflect Mm. and think about some of those questions so i really appreciate 
um, being here, being invited to be here. So thank you. And thank you all for listening. Visit NAMI Minnesota online at namimn.org. All music loops used in this episode came from the song titled The Way, produced by Mike Lighty and made available through a Creative Commons license. Mike Lighty's music can be heard online at soundcloud.com forward slash Mike Lighty. Lighty is spelled L-E-I-T-E. For information about the Creative Commons license and additional links to Mike's music, including the full version of the song, The Way, please see the podcast show notes for this episode.